please remain standing as we continue to worship by reading in God's word. This morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not merely being human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned, each to, assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Please be seated. Hey, good morning. Turning your copy of Scripture to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. And let's pray and ask God to give us His help. God, we thank You for the love You have shown us through Jesus. And we thank You, God, that as we come before You, uh, You hear and You know, because You are our Savior, our Lord, our Priest, and our King. We pray, God, as we take time in Your Word this morning, that You would help us to see and know You better that your kindness would lead us to repentance, that you would encourage us in those places where we have been um, beaten down, and God, that you would humble us in those places where we are being arrogant. God, I pray for Karen. Uh, she fell and hurt her ribs, and she's in a lot of pain. Pray, God, that you would give her the help she needs. And we also pray for Patty. She has a procedure on Thursday, and we pray that it would be successful. God, be with us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking, uh, well, obviously going through the book of 1 Corinthians, but we've been talking about the gospel a lot because that's what it's about a lot, especially in the first couple of chapters. And here in chapter 3, we're starting chapter 3 here this morning. We're, we're sort of finally getting to a point that he's making. And as you can tell from the reading, he's, he's not terribly subtle. <laughs> We're finally get to the issue, and the issue is kind of this. When, what happens when Christians forget the gospel? What happens when the church forgets the gospel, forgets the cross? What happens when we set aside the, the things of Christ's work through the cross in the open tomb? And, and what happens when we, when we forget about the gospel, when we forget about the cross, is the result is churches and people in the churches don't look very much like Jesus. Now, we're not saying that you would forget the cross. If you, if you walked up to anybody in a church today and you said, have you ever heard of Jesus dying on the cross? My guess would be almost everybody there would say, oh yeah, I've heard of that. So it's not like we've somehow forgotten him, but we're talking about how do we live our lives and when our lives and our thinking is such that the good news of the gospel and what Christ did on the cross is set aside as a secondary matter of, of lesser importance. The result is that people in churches and churches themselves don't look a lot like Jesus. What happens is when we set aside the cross as being the first and foremost things in our life, 
And we end up with the wrong purposes, the wrong goals, the wrong aims in our life. And we also look up to the wrong people. So these are some things that happen, and that's what's happening in this church when this church, the church in Corinth, forgot the cross. So when a church forgets the cross, we're going to look at two things. And these two things are things that happen. And they're also things that when they're happening, they diagnose whether or not we're living a, a cross-forgetful life. So if we've kind of put the, the cross to the side and we're living another way, these things generally happen and they help diagnose. Because my, my expectation is you came to church on a Sunday morning, it's kind of cold out. You say, well, are you living your life as though you've forgotten the cross? I think all of us would say, well, absolutely not. And what these verses will help us do is diagnose whether or not that's actually true. Whether or not our life does reflect a mindfulness of the things of God through the cross. So verses 1 through 4, when a church forgets the cross, and when people in a church forget the cross, they think they're spiritual, but they're not. They think they are, though. If you were to ask these people, say, are you spiritual? They go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I got that nail. Pretty good to go on that. So, so when we forget the cross as individuals and as a church, we think we're spiritual, but we're actually not spiritual. In fact, we're the opposite. Now, this is a common thing that happens in life. In fact, uh, they interviewed uh, professional athletes, NBA players, as a matter of fact, and, and there's two kinds of in shape. Now, as you might expect, when there's no season going on, NBA players generally uh, work out and keep themselves in shape, unless you're Charles Barkley, then obviously not. <laughs> There's a difference, though, between working out in the off-season shape and what we call game shape. So in the off-season, a player was thinking, man, I'm working out hours and hours a day. I'm sweating. I'm getting my cardio up. I think, you know, I'm in pretty good shape. And then all of a sudden, the season starts, and they're playing two or three games a week. And they said, oh, I wasn't in shape. This is a different kind of in shape uh, that I'm dealing with now. So uh, those who train vigorously think they're in shape, but they're not. And this is what happens to people in the church. Is we think we're spiritual, and the reality is we might not be. There, there's a way to understand whether or not we are, according to this passage. There's some things going on here, and if they're true in the life of an individual, the Apostle Paul is saying, you're not spiritual. You're living just as a, a mere human, as the text says. A couple of things. Number one, it isn't spiritual to only seek teaching that leaves the gospel behind. We're not saying we shouldn't learn other things or think about other things, but if we think spirituality is achieved from something other than the gospel, that isn't spiritual. To seek to be spiritual and know the Lord by growing in ways that aren't gospel-oriented or cross-oriented is not spiritual. It's seeking to be, and it, and it isn't. And an important symptom of the unspiritual is creating needless divisions within the church. And these two things are related. It's not spiritual to, think, to seek to know the Lord in ways other than the gospel. And a fundamental symptom of the unspiritual heart in the individual is creating needless divisions within the church. Does that make sense? Okay, let's look at how the verses spell this out. And then you can decide whether or not you agree with me or if you are wrong. Those you only need two options. Verse one, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people. That's a great way to start. Isn't I can't address you as spiritual, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. One thing I want to make fundamentally clear, 
as we set out into this passage, Paul is not questioning whether or not the people in this church are Christians. If you look back at verse 4 of chapter 1, he says this about this same group of people. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. In every way you were enriched in him. So the Apostle Paul agrees that these folks in this church are believers. He's not saying you're not believers, but you're not living as spiritually uh, enriched believers. So the question here isn't their salvation. The question, and we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks, the issue is they're living their lives inconsistent with what they believe about Jesus in the gospel. So they're living their life one way, but they saying they believe about God in the gospel another way. And so their life is inconsistent with what they understand to be true in the gospel. The problem is they think they're mature. They think they're the authorities. They think they're the spiritually enlightened ones, the brilliant ones, the, the ones who have got it all figured out. And, and Paul understands this distinction. He, he mentions a couple of things here that we might look at, a couple of terms that, that we need to pay attention to. Number one, he says, I can't address you as spiritual, but as of the flesh. He's talking about what, are their, what is moving them, what is motivating them, the things of God, things of the gospel, or are they being spiritual, or are they motivated by their own desires, their, their own motivations, their own uh, arrogance and their own pride. Which one is motivating them? And he says, I have to address you as people who are motivated for your own agenda. That's what he means by the flesh. They want to be seen as smart, sophisticated, and brilliant, and, and listening to the right teachers. He says, I can't address you as spiritual. Spiritual people think, seek the things of God. You're seeking your own things. There's another term he uses here. He says, I can't address you as spiritual, but people of the flesh as infants in Christ. He, he's saying, listen, I can't address you as somebody who's mature. And this is a term he used before. This is, uh, look in verse 6 of, uh, of the second chapter. 1 Corinthians 2, 6. The people of Corinth, and, and he's addressing an issue with these folks, they, they, they felt that Paul's teaching was too basic and too lowbrow. And he says, look, among the mature, we impart wisdom. And so what he was saying to them in that point, and we talked about this at length, was the reason you don't think what I'm talking about, the gospel, is a big deal is because you're immature. Because people who are growing in the Lord understand the, the power of the gospel is that which changes us and makes us like Jesus. So Paul sees a distinction. He made two distinctions. He said, you're not spiritual, you're of the flesh, and you're not mature, you are Infants. So that's what he says about the Corinthians here. Now he's not saying they're not believers. He's saying you're believers. But you're not spiritual and you're not mature. You're operating through your own agenda and you're immature. You are infants. And so what Paul is doing in this chapter, in chapter 3, is he's going to address them as immature fleshly Christians. That's nice. Wouldn't you like to get that letter in the mail? Dear immature fleshly Christian. The downside is they think they are spiritual and mature. So how do you think they would have taken it when they got this letter? They didn't take it well. Created an argument because they were wrong. Paul knows they are not spiritual and mature, but they rather need help. Look at, uh, look at verse 2 of what happens when you think you're spiritual and, and you're not. 
Here's what he says. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready for it. So he says, look, I fed you with milk. What he's doing here is he is taking a criticism that they have leveled against him. And now he is showing them that the issue actually isn't him, it's them. So what happens, he came and taught them and he was teaching them and he's explaining to them the good news of the gospel and the implications of the gospel in their life. And, and, and they were all going, you know, we've kind of moved on, Paul. We're kind of big time. We're pretty sophisticated. We've been studying some of these Greek uh, Sophia wisdom arguments and we've been really moving on past the gospel to, to much more important and bigger and deeper things. And so, Paul, we don't need your milk. We're looking for solid food. And Paul says, I brought you milk because you're babies. That's why I brought you milk. And the solid food you are seeking is not solid food. So here's the distinction. What they are saying is, you brought us milk of the gospel and we wanted solid food of sophisticated and brilliant Greek reasoning. And Paul is saying, I brought you the milk of the gospel because you're such a baby, you can't handle the solid food of the gospel. He's saying the problem is you moved on from the gospel thinking there isn't solid food of the gospel, and there is. Guess what? We never got to it because you're babies. And I'm being nice here. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about them. Sorry, I don't know what you heard. So he is saying there is solid food of the gospel, but you don't want the solid food of the gospel. You want a, a little bit of gospel so you feel like you're, in Je you're jesus -y, and then you want to move on to other things. And we said, why, why would you want to do that? Because the solid food of this Greek w wisdom that they were seeking isn't the gospel. It doesn't tell them anything. It moves them and keeps them in infancy. They think gospel is milk. And Paul is saying, well, I gave you basic gospel, but there was more to it. And I never could get beyond it because of your infancy. So what is the difference here? Because maybe some of us are going, well, I want to know what's the difference between milk and solid food? Well, let's look at it. Uh, familiar verse, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Now, I don't know if you know much about Romans. Um, it's put together like a lot of Paul's books. Uh, is he did, Chapters 1 through 11, he tells them the gospel. 11 chapters of the gospel in different ways. Really, really interesting. And then what he does is chapter 12 to the end of the book is, since the gospel is true and you believe it, here's how you should live, right? So chapters 1 through 11, basically, here's the gospel, chapters 12 through 16, I think. Uh, this is how then you should live. There, there's another good example of this is the book of Ephesians. It is Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Here's the gospel. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. Here's how you should live if you believe the gospel. Okay? And so what he's doing in Romans 12 is he's transitioning from telling them the gospel to how it's supposed to show up in your life. Let's read what he says. And you know these verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. When, when you read a therefore in the Bible, what do you say? What is the therefore, therefore? I appeal to you, therefore, because of the first 11 chapters, because the gospel is true, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's saying, since you believe the gospel, which means that you are died dead to sin and alive to Christ, therefore, what you ought to do is take your personhood 
and think of your entire life as an act of worship to God. That's what he's saying here. Take your, your, your body and say, what does it look like for me, awake, asleep, on vacation, at work, at home, in the community, to be worshiping God? What does it mean to worship God when I drive? What does it mean to worship God when I golf? What does it mean to worship God when I watch football? I, these are all things. He says, how do you worship God? Does that kind of make sense? Your whole life is an act of worship. We don't only go to temple and worship. We say we are the temple, so we're always worshiping. So therefore, what do we do? He answers the question. Verse 2 of Romans 12. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you see what he did there? He went from be transformed to now all of a sudden you've got to figure something out. What's he say? Test that you may discern the will of God. When you're testing something, what does that mean? It means you do something and then what do you learn when you do something? Oh, don't do it that way again. And then, or sometimes you say, oh, that's the right way to do it. So what we're doing is we're seeking to worship God with our life, and it takes time to learn. What do we call that? Growing, maturing. But what do we want instead of that process? We want a to-do list and a to-don't list. We want somebody to give us a list of things that good Christians do, and then a list of things good Christians don't do, and if we follow the list, we're mature. Guess what? If you need a list, you're a baby. That's milk. Somebody has to tell you, don't get drunk. It's in the Bible, Ephesians 5. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, right? So there's, don't do that. You want to worship God with your body, and you want to worship God with alcohol consumption, what do you do? Don't get drunk, okay? Now, what are you asking? We're just going to go down this trail. This isn't in my notes. This could be fun. I could get in trouble. So what did somebody just ask? In your head, what did you just ask? How many? <laughs> How many still? See, you want a to-do list and a to-don't list. Well, so, so is the church going to have to issue an alcohol by weight list for you? Like if you're, if you're, if you're two bills, you can go two drinks. If, you, if, you're, if you're three hundy, maybe another one. Is that what you want? Yeah, because you're an infant. Where a, a person who wants to discern says, okay, I know what God is looking for, and I know the gospel is true, so how do I worship? How do I worship? And what does that mean? Sometimes I'm going to get it right. They say, okay, I, I think this is where, I think, we're, I think we're in the zone here. And then other times, okay, this wasn't the right way to do it. This wasn't, I don't want to do it this way anymore. And I'm not seeking some statute that is issued by a religious order that tells me how I'm supposed to live. This is what good parents do. And this is what good uh, children do at school. And this is what good men do at work. And if you want to be a good Christian, you've got to be able to hit this punch list. And that, worked, that has worked for a long time. And all I'm saying is, that's what babies need. Babies need instructions. Mature adults make decisions. You see the difference. And what he's saying in Romans 12 is that's hard to do and it takes time to figure out. And so we don't want to go down that road. Uh, one other verse on this. Psalm 32 verses 8 and 9. 
Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. Here's what David is saying. I don't know if he's talking to his son or maybe his military, probably maybe a, a bit of both. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is great. He's about to give us the list, right? So I'm going to tell you how to live. I'm going to tell you as a king, as a general, as a warrior. I want to give you instructions on what it means. He's talking about spiritual life. Verse 9, look what's he say. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay with you. Here's a king, a leader of men, a warrior, a leader of warriors, a father. Well, he wasn't so great at that, let's be honest. And what does he not need? If he's got a military behind him, does he need a thousand guys asking him what they need, are supposed to do? Okay, what do I do now? Okay, what do I do now? Okay, what do I do now? What is David going to do for those guys? You know what? Go home. I got this. But what does he need if he's going to have a, a powerful military? He needs a bunch of guys who know the mission and are willing to figure it out. They don't have to be led like a bunch of, like a mule. That's insulting. He says, if I got to lead you like a mule, you're no good to me. That's what he's saying. What I need you to do as a, as a warrior and what he needs us to do as people following the Lord, we, we, we want to be led along, spoon-fed. Here, here, here you go. Here's your nutrition for the day. We want to sit in our, in our little thingy. What do babies sit in? I haven't had a baby for a long time. They're a little thingy and it bounces them and they got their binky. That's what we want. And then we, we, we go and we want to be spoon-fed what we're supposed to think and what we're supposed to do. Heaven forbid we have to crack open our Bible and try and figure something out. And, and what, what Paul is saying and what David is saying is, don't be like a mule that has to be led along. Look, something's happened. What am I going to do? Well, we've got to figure it out. We've got to seek the Lord, as he said in Romans 12, by testing Try and figure out, well, how does it look like in my life to worship God, but, but I have to be led along by, like, a, like a mule? Babies need details. Infants need constant care. Infants need to be fed and told what they think and told what to do. Grown-ups know the mission and they make decisions. They say, you know what, I know what worship looks like for me and my family. I know what worship looks like as a follower of Jesus in work. And what worship looks like as a follower of Jesus in my school. And, and I've gotten it wrong a whole bunch of times, but I also know a thousand different ways not to do it now. I'm going to keep getting after it. But the last thing I don't want to be, I don't want to be a mule who has to be led to everything. And this is what the people of Corinth thought. They thought because they were spoon-fed by the best teachers. They listened to all the right podcasts. Okay, listen to podcasts. I'm not down on podcasts. It's fine. But, but they want to be... We need everybody to tell us what we think and what we do. And what Paul is saying, well, you're in Christ, but you're not spiritual. And you think you're grown-ups, but you're acting like infants. Okay, let's go back to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, looking at verse 3. Here he's going to help us diagnose what's going on. You are still of the flesh. There is jealousy and strife among you. Are you not of the flesh and behaving only in human 
ways. So he says the first thing, he wants to get at the heart. How do they know, how does he know they're of the flesh? He tells them to look inside. There's jealousy and strife among you. So he doesn't say whether or not it's okay to have jealousy and strife. He's not saying, well, you've got something going on, so you're feeling envious, or you've got some things going on, and you're feeling strife. What he's saying is, you are arguing over who's the greatest teacher to teach you stuff. And you're, you're jealous and envious over this. Let me just paint the picture for you. It's two babies in their high chair, mad about who's getting what pureed vegetable. But they think they're mature because they think they're mature because they know which pureed vegetable they're supposed to eat. That's, so they think because they have a discerning palate of who's spoon-feeding them truth, they must be spiritual because they have a strong opinion. I mean, is, isn't this the case? I must be spiritual because I have a strong opinion about something. And Paul is saying, no, the, the strife between you and another person is a clear indication you're not spiritual. This is what's happening. You say, you think you're mature because you look down on other people and you create divisions that are unneeded. And this is actually a clear indication that you aren't spiritual. It's because you're creating these divisions. They assume their actions. I, I listen to Paul and I listen to Apollos and I want this kind of teaching. They assume those kinds of actions indicate they're spiritual and mature. It actually shows they're the opposite. And here he gets right down to it in verse 4. When one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? That is, they're not flexing the spiritual muscles. You're just doing what every other carbon-based human has done. Has a strong opinion, is willing to tell people about it. The gospel is not a competition. It's not a competition for who's the smartest, who can uh, apply the scripture most subtly. It's not who can have the strongest conviction about unimportant matters. The gospel is redemption through relationship with God that transforms how we relate with one another. So Jesus dies on the cross for sinners. Romans 5.8. Familiar? While we were still sinners... But, with, but having lots of potential, that's not in there. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so who do we serve if we're Jesus-y? Sinners. Because Jesus serves, you see what we did there? Jesus serves sinners. So if Jesus' redemption is supposed to inform how I relate to others, that means... I should be willing to give up what I think is important for people who don't deserve it. Hey, as it works out, this is perfect because we got a room full of them. That's a church. That's where you call a church. A whole bunch of people that get together that don't deserve one another and then we serve each other not so that we deserve it but because we don't. The definition of a gospel relationship is to serve people who don't deserve it, who don't get it, who don't appreciate it. That's, that's the definition of it. The people in Corinth only wanted to have unity with all the people who were just like them, who were just as awesome as them. They got it just like them and they, they listened to the same teachers. They were spoon-fed the same truth. And that's not the gospel. That's not relationships informed by the work of the, of, of the gospel. That's relationships just like the world works. Right? The, the world, you hang out with people who are like you. 
and you respect people who are respectable, and you serve people who uh, get it and will appreciate it, and will write a, a nicely worded handwritten thank you card. And, and the gospel does other things. The gospel serves people who don't get it and people who don't deserve it and who aren't ever going to write a thank you card and may in fact send you a card about how you did it wrong. This is the gospel. It's not a competition. It's not a division. It is redemptive relationship with God that transforms how we relate with one another. That's how it's supposed to work. When a church forgets the cross, they think they're spiritual when they're not. Their behavior is marked by jealousy and strife, and they think that jealousy and strife is a sign that they have discerning doctrinal palate, when in fact it just demonstrates that they're immature. When a church forgets cross, verses 5 through 9, they look up to servants instead of looking up to God. So when the gospel stops being the rallying cry of the church, the church will find something to rally around. Okay? When the, when the gospel stops being the rallying cry of the church, the church will find something to rally for. That, that's what we do. So if it's not the gospel, we're going we're gonna to fill it in with, with lots of different things that may or may not be good applications of the gospel. We're going we're gonna to fill it in with, with some hero that isn't Jesus, some cause that isn't redemption. We see this all over the place. We see uh, churches are primarily political action committees. Can we worship God as citizens of a country where we can engage in political conversation? Yes. Is the church a political action committee? I was hoping for a quicker answer on that one. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. And that's what happens. When the gospel stops being the thing, we will fill it in with something. It can end up, instead of being the gospel, it's a, a social support structure for people who have minimum or limited social supports in their own community. So basically, we provide connection and help for people who don't have a lot of connection and help. Or it becomes a, a social uh, work in the community. We've got to make sure everybody has food to eat and a roof over their head. Should the church do that? Yeah, but is that our main mission? No, that's an implication of the gospel. People can have a roof over the head and not get saved. Did you know this? You have to have the Savior to go to heaven. Being housed doesn't get you to heaven. And so if, we, if the gospel isn't the rallying cry of the individuals in a church or a church, we will in fact fill it up with something. And when a church forgets the gospel, we look to servants instead of to God. Think about it this way. If you're going on a trip and you have to fly in an airplane, it's not a good idea to assume you had a great trip because the flight got there. That's what the plane is supposed to do. But the whole idea of flying somewhere is to enjoy your destination. And this is what we do in the church all the time. We miss the point and instead just look at the, at the, thing, the benefits of the church and forget that the main point is the gospel in our community. Let me put it this way. It is not possible to put people on a pedestal without disregarding the cross. To put people on a pedestal forgets that God did all the work and it forgets that the method of relationship in the church is servanthood, not exaltation. So when we put people on a pedestal, we forget that God is the one who did the work and it also means we have forgotten that the whole culture of the church community is servanthood, not being exalted. Let's look at the verses. Verse five. What then is Apollos? 
What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Just by way of reminder, Paul, of course, is the Apostle Paul. He's the one who wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians, and a couple of other books in your New Testament. Apollos was a guy who got saved. He's in Acts. His conversion is listed in Acts. He was a really, really bright guy. He was raised in Alexandria, where all the smart people were raised. This guy was smart, and he could speak really, really good and stuff. <laughs> Apollos could read the phone book, and people would get saved. I mentioned that one time, and somebody came up to me afterwards and said, uh, there might be some people in the room who don't know what a phone book is. <laughs> and uh, Google it. I'm not changing it. I like how that one rolls off the tongue, so I'm sticking with it. Apollos was brilliant. He had all the right answers. He could, he could argue all the intricacies and details of theology. And he was well-learned in, in languages and all these kinds of things. And, and Paul was too. But they, had, they just had different approaches and they had different gifting. And what Paul is saying is uh, the people of Corinth are really looking up to Apollo, some of them, and really, uh, so others are really looking up to Paul. And he's saying, what, why, what are you doing? Why are you putting Apollos up on a pedestal? Why are you putting the Apostle Paul up on a pedestal? And he says, the first thing you need to recognize is who are they? What's it say? They are servants. He says, the problem is you need to recognize that servants serve because there is a master. And who is the master? It is Christ. So the servant who is serving only does so because the master, number one, has empowered that servant to do what he's been called to do or she has been called to do. Secondly, because the master has provided what's needed for that servant to do it. The other thing we, we must not forget does Jesus need Apollos or Paul? No. It is only an act of God's grace that he has decided to let us be a part of his mission. And so Paul and Apollos are graced by God to have a particular calling within the ministry of the church, and they do it. But they're nothing. They're servants. The only reason they have a job is Jesus decided to let them do it. Not nearly as good as Jesus could have done it. And secondly, everything that Paul and Apollos did was a result of what God provided for them. So if Paul or Apollos do something noteworthy, what does that mean? Jesus should be exalted. Not Apollos and not Paul. Whatever the servant does is because of what Christ has done in them and through them. The servant, though, is what? The servant's nothing. The servant's not necessary. The servant doesn't matter outside of the work of what Christ is doing. And they've forgotten this. They've forgotten. They think, well, Apollos matters and Paul matters and I want to hitch my wagon to someone who matters. And why is that? Because I want to feel like I matter. And Paul's saying this is ridiculous. Don't do this. Verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the growth. Servants do a job. God is the only one who does what actually does a thing. Right? He said... Within the ministry context of Corinth, uh, Paul says, I planted. So if you could, you want to go into Acts 18, and you could see how Paul went to Corinth and, and preached the gospel, and people got saved. So he's basically saying, I planted the seed of the gospel ministry in the city of Corinth. And then after Paul had been there for a while, a couple of years maybe, 18 months or two years, he left. At a certain time, Apollos came in. And Apollos also had a ministry there of teaching and training and encouraging and building them up in the 
in the gospel. So one person planted the seed, another one did the pruning and then fertilizing or whatever else you do with plants. But who makes the plant grow? God makes the plant grow. So what are the servants contributing? They're not really contributing anything that's material other than what God wants to do with it. This is, this is what he's saying. He says, no, when we look at how the ministry functions in the church, the servants do a job. The servant does a job as directed, hopefully. But a servant is, is only incidental to the growth. Growth is only caused within a body of believers or within us in a, as individuals. Growth is only caused when God decides to make us grow. God is the one who, who grows us. No one else grows us. And that's what he's saying. So how can we put somebody up on a pedestal? It doesn't make any sense. The only person that should be exalted in the, God, in the, in the church is Jesus himself. But do servants matter? Look at verse 8. He says, sure they do. He who plants and he who waters is one. Each will receive his wages according to his labor. This is Paul saying nicely. Okay, I serve the church in Corinth. And Apollo served the church in Corinth. And what do we need from the church in Corinth? Nothing. We're getting what we want from our Savior. We're not working for you. We're working for Jesus. And so he's going to say it a little bit less uh, subtle later. He's going to say, I think it might even be 2 Corinthians. He goes, oh, oh, you thought we were trying to impress you. Oh, now it's awkward. Because we're not here for you. That's what he was saying. I'm here to serve Jesus. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you what Jesus calls me to give to you. And if you don't want it, it's your business. Because my pay stub doesn't come from you. It comes from Jesus. That's his argument. So do the servants matter? Yes, they matter because they're called by Christ to do a particular work within the body of believers. But they're rewarded not by the body of believers, but by Christ himself. In eternity, not here. So he is saying, what he's saying here is this disunity within the body of believers, some pursuing one teacher and one pursuing another, and any sense of disunity within the church, it goes against the whole redemptive framework of what the church is built on. Servants are rewarded by God, not by people, and the whole, the whole intent is to serve one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. This is Paul arguing that all relationships in the body of believers work together under and for God. We're God's fellow workers. Not just Paul, not just Apollos, but every member of the church in Corinth. He's going to get later on, he's going to talk about it being a body. There's feet and there's ears and there's uh, molars. Well, that's not in there, but there's a body of believers and each body part has a role and a, and a function to serve one another within the body of Christ. He's saying the purpose of servants is to serve God. To, to supply the church with everything God would, would provide through the gospel because everything is God's and it is for God. When a church forgets the cross, they think they're spiritual when they're not. And when a church forgets the cross, they look up to servants instead of God. A couple other verses I want to touch on by way of closing. How do you know if you're spiritual? Maybe that's a, that's a fair question, don't you think? How do you know if you're spiritual? That's a, that's a fair one. Uh, so let me give you a... I'm going to take a swing at it. You mind? Here we go. To be spiritual is Christ-likeness 
being like Jesus, primarily displayed through humble service to people who don't deserve it. See, what does it mean to be spiritual? Being like Jesus by humbly serving others who don't deserve it. John chapter 13. Jesus, this is uh, the Last Supper, and Jesus washed his feet, uh, the disciples' feet. You remember this? John 13, 12. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Andrew spoke up. And he said, well, I took a, uh, an online spiritual gift test. And it turns out, I mean, no offense, Jesus. It turns out washing feet's not my gifting. And... Um, I need something that connects kind of with who I am. I need kind of the, the song of my soul to be awakened by this ministry. And, and I, I gotta be honest, I'm not sure if foot washing's the thing. And, uh, and Jesus said, oh, no, that's good. That's good. Yeah, so don't wash anybody's feet. Did he do that? What do you say? Wash the feet. I really wasn't asking if you wanted to. Nobody wants to. In fact, that's basically what he said. Nobody wants to wash feet. No, nobody wants to wash it. Nobody has spiritual gift foot washing. Somebody's just got to wash the feet. Who's going to wash the feet? You should wash the feet. But what if somebody else gets to it first? Then you lost. They won. They got, they got to it. I have given you an example, verse 15, that you also should do just as I have done to you. Wash the feet. That's what he's talking about. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. I don't like to wash feet. You're not better than Jesus. That's what he just said. Well, there's some things I don't really think are my thing. You're not better than Jesus. That's, you're not better than Jesus. Jesus says, I, I'm not really interested. What needs to be done is you need to humbly serve others who don't deserve it. And, and if you don't think that's you then you think you're better than Jesus. And you might want to think that through a little. The servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you who do them. What does it mean to be spiritual? Be like Jesus. Humbly serve people in ways you don't like, and it's even better if they don't deserve it. That's the sweet spot. Doing stuff you don't like for people who don't deserve it. Oh, I, let's take a next level. And they don't appreciate it. And oh, next level. They're going to tell you how to do it right next time. Anybody ever done this? Some of you have been in church five minutes. You've had this happen. This is what it means to be spiritual. No, spiritual is I never worry. Well, I would hope you don't worry, but we all worry. You know what? And I struggle with worry. You struggle with worry. So while we're worrying, why don't we do this? Humbly serve. People who don't deserve it and who don't, 
That, that's spiritual. Well, that, that seems sort of basic. Yeah, it's kind of milk, isn't it? Because then you're going to try and figure out, well, what are, what are other ways I could do it that aren't spelled out? Nobody's washing feet. You notice we don't have a foot washing station out front. We don't need to. We got showers. But, but you may think, well, I don't know what the foot wash, I don't know what the equivalent is. And so now you're going, I wonder what an equivalent of that would be for me. So what are you doing right there? When you had that, are you asking yourself that question right now? You're annoyed that I brought it up. What are you trying to do? When you do that, you say, well, what's the equivalent for me now? What you're trying to do is saying, I don't need to be led by like a mule. I'm going to think this through like a grown-up and try and figure out what being Jesus-y looks like when I serve others who don't deserve it. I've got to think, uh, how, does that, how does that work for me to worship Jesus by being like Jesus in, in my home and at my work and in my community? That's, that's being a grown-up. We want something better than that. We want a, a complicated book to read because that means we don't have to serve anybody. Moving on. How do we know if we're putting someone on a pedestal? Because we all, we have people we like to listen to, authors we like to read, and I think that's great. Here's how you know if someone, you're putting someone on a pedestal. Does that teacher, that author, what, what, whoever it might be for you, do they make you know Jesus more? Does that author make you want to know more of Jesus and his gospel? Does that preacher or teacher or leader make you want to know Jesus more? And at some point, could you imagine no longer needing to listen to that person anymore because you know Jesus? That's what we should be doing. Is if somebody isn't leading me to Jesus, then, then do something different. And I'm not saying present company excluded. If, if being a part of this church doesn't lead you to Jesus, then find the church that does. I'm serious. And if listening to a particular teacher or reading a particular author doesn't want you, make you want to know more of Jesus, put it down. What use is it? That's what Paul was saying to us. How do I know if I'm putting someone on a pedestal? If my goal is to know them, then I missed it. I don't want to know some author or some preacher or some teacher. I want to know Jesus. All right, last one. No, I'm serious. What does it mean to lead like Jesus? So we've talked about serving like Jesus, but what does it mean to lead like Jesus? Uh, Mark 10 and Luke 22. Uh, they're the parallel of each other. So Mark 10, let me read it. Mark 10, verse 42. Jesus called to him and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it should not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many." Luke twenty two twenty seven. For who is greater, one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Yeah. I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus' leadership, if you want to be a leader in the body of Christ, now prayer that would be true for all of us, but if you want to be a leader in the body of Christ, is to work diligently to be the first one to do the worst job. So he said, 
friend of mine, Pastor Mark of the White Salmon, puts it this way. This is a race to the bottom of the pile. That's what, that's what the kingdom of God is like. That is completely upside down. Completely upside down. Everywhere else, everywhere else in the world, it is a race to the top of the hill. The body of Christ is completely upside down in this regard. Exaltation is found only in Christ, and to be exalted in Christ is to live like Christ, is to see who can get the worst job first. That's what a leader does. When a church forgets the cross, well, we think we're spiritual when we're not. We think we're spiritual because we read the right books instead of serving like Jesus. And when a church forgets the cross, we look up to servants instead of God. God, we thank you for Jesus. And I am, I am grateful, God, that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I thank you, God, that you came as a servant. You didn't come for the elite. You didn't come for the people who had it all together. You came for us who needed a savior. God, I would pray that you would do a work in our hearts. That we would be so moved to know our Savior Jesus that we would want to live our life the way he lived. Humble service. Looking to the needs of others first. Seeking to be lifted up through serving others. God, would you forgive us for our pride and arrogance? There are many ways in which each of us, Lord, have sort of figured that we had it all figured out. God, would you give us humility in Christ to recognize that we need Jesus each and every day, that the growth only comes from you? Would you forgive us, God, for putting people on pedestals that aren't Jesus? And God, would you forgive us for wanting to be served instead of wanting to serve others? God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with such hope and such grace and such levity in Jesus that the overflow of what you do in our hearts would impact the lives of people around us. Thank you for Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand up with us as we close with a song?